It is the Monday, as we've been talking about, after the civic elections around the province. One of the most watched races taking place in Surrey. Doug McCallum going down in defeat in what was a very close, close vote. Uh, And that surprised many people. The polls did not indicate that at any point that Doug McCallum would be that close to... uh, to remaining as mayor of Surrey. But at the end of the night, Brenda Locke has been and was elected as mayor of Surrey, is now in the wonderful position of mayor-elect, will soon be mayor for for reals, as they say, when uh, when the right council and swearing-in takes place. Congratulations, Brenda Locke. You are joining us now, and I thank you so much for that. Um, or should I say congratulations or be careful what you wish for? <laughs> Maybe some of each, but actually, I am absolutely honored and uh, looking forward to being uh, the mayor of the great city of Surrey. So, uh, thank you, and thank you for having me on, Bruce. Oh, well, we appreciate it, and so do the people of Surrey in uh, hearing about what's going to be a tough four years ahead. Um, I've got to say, uh, some of the issues uh, are not going to be easy. Are you ready for this? Do you have a. a I don't know, the the gumption to uh, stick with it all the way through and to uh, carry on even when it gets nasty. You know, Bruce, I think I had a good training the previous four years uh, with uh, knowing where things have gone offside and need to be corrected. We need a lot of course correction in our city. Uh, and um, if uh, the previous mayor did any anything right, he's sure... Uh, let me show where I should be looking and where some of the bones may be buried. Absolutely. Now, some people are quick to point out, we should get this out of the way. Um, the last election, not this one, but you ran on Doug McCallum's slate. For those of us who may have a difficult time remembering how things fell apart, what happened there? Yeah, and they fell apart very quickly. They fell apart uh right away when we said, okay, now we have to do due diligence on some of the things we've talked about. And uh, McCallum said, no, it's not for you to talk, to worry about. I've got this. It's going to stay in the mayor's office. And we said, well, I don't think so. That's not how we operate. And then, of course, you start to do your own due diligence and you find out that there was no feasibility study for the police transition there was no real reason to stop the ice arena from going forward in, in Cloverdale. I mean, there were just so many things that made no sense uh, at all to us. So uh, that we left very quickly thereafter. And one of the issues that quickly emerged uh, of the ones you're talking about as being probably the foremost uh, issue is uh, the transition from uh, Surrey RCMP to a uh, Surrey Police Department. Of course, you've been outspoken. I, I would even say you've doubled down on saying, no, there won't be a Surrey Police Department. The Surrey RCMP are going to be, uh, if you get in, which you have, the Surrey RCMP will be the Department of Surrey. Um, you st- you're staying with that unequivocally, unequivocally. There we go, aren't you? <laughs> Absolutely. We are uh, We are going to retain and maintain the uh, RCMP as the police of jurisdiction. They are currently. Uh, they will be moving forward, the police of jurisdiction in Surrey, and we will be stopping 
uh, the Surrey Police Service from moving forward. Uh, that will be happening over the coming, actually the process has already started, but that will continue to uh, unwind over the next um, next weeks and months. You've been very clear with that uh, this morning, speaking with Simi Sarah, uh, Melissa Granham, Executive Director of the Surrey Police uh, Board, had this to say, which runs contrary to what you said. Let's just take a quick listen. I don't believe it can. I, I believe the province will look at this. They didn't make this decision lightly, um, and they didn't make it with the expectation that it would be an election issue every four years. That's Melissa Granham saying you can't reverse this. Um, you can, in your view, uh, Brenda Locke. How can you? I, I absolutely can, and it's uh, really, to me, kind of irrelevant what Ms. Granham has to say. I can tell you for sure that eight people on a police board will not dictate the outcome of elections. The the um, residents of Surrey were crystal clear. They said they want to stay with the RCMP. What I ran on was always front and center. I did not hide that. The residents knew that. But on top of that, Bruce, we've had a number of Um, We've had petitions, we've had polls, we've had consultation processes that all said the residents of Surrey do not want to carry forward with this. They want it stopped. And maybe Ms. Granham wants to carry it on because she's obviously biased. She has an employment there. Uh, But we cannot do this to our residents. It has to stop We cannot afford it moving forward, and it will stop. And I have every confidence that the provincial government will uh, will look at that very seriously. And as they have said in the past, both um, the Solicitor General and the Premier, it is up to Surrey to decide, and Surrey decided at this election. Surrey decided at this election, and there will be yourself as the new mayor coming in, Brenda Locke, also uh, a council coming in that supports you. Um, But uh, there are still senior officers, a senior level of bureaucracy, if you would, with the Surrey Police Department that's in place. What is going to happen to the the chief and uh, some of the senior officers? Are they going to be uh, given uh, termination notices immediately? Well, I don't know that it will be immediately, and I don't know that will be up to staff, and I've asked our staff to start that process, so uh, they know uh, they have done that. I actually spoke with them yesterday. They're starting to look at at the unwinding. Um, they will also be looking at any other uh, costs that, that uh, will come our way. But one thing we know, and this is from our city staff, we know that the cost of stopping this now is far less, far, far less than carrying it on. We simply cannot keep on going. But, you know, this is only one part of policing for Surrey or public safety for Surrey. We have to now uh, amp up. It will not be business as usual for the RCMP. We will be amping up their numbers, so we'll be increasing the numbers of RCMP officers. Uh, We will also um, be looking at how uh, we can develop a board that addresses public safety issues generally in our city. That will be underway very shortly, and that will be made up of 
residents of the city of Surrey, and they will be um, picked by the res- by Surrey, whereas the police board now is answerable to the province, and it's not necessarily all um, Surrey residents. It, it, in fact, is not all Surrey residents. We're talking with Brenda Locke, mayor-elect of Surrey, Doug McCallum going down in defeat narrowly, but narrowly doesn't matter if it's narrowly or if it's by a long shot. But uh, it is Brenda Locke who came out the winner on Saturday night and will be the next mayor of Surrey. Um, Brenda Locke, one thing that uh, Melissa Granham, the executive director of the Surrey Police Department, did say is uh, despite what has been kicked around, the officers that have been hired by the Surrey Police uh, Department, um, those officers, frontline officers, can't go back to their old jobs. Here's a clip of her. Our police officers are concerned, and, and rightfully so, because that, those aren't fair statements to make you're hired by the Surrey Police Service, the board is the employer, and we hire people. So they've left a job and they've come to a new job. If this job ends, they would have to go out and find a new job. They can't just be transferred back. There's no agreements in place to say if this were not to move forward that they would automatically go back to their original home agency or be, or be absorbed into the RCMP. They are a federal employer and we are a municipal employer. That's Melissa Granham on Simi Sarah this morning. Um, do you agree with her? No, actually, um, but uh, I can tell you that I have already talked to um, to the RCMP, and they have a bridging program. So, yes, in fact, if there are people that want to uh, want to ladder to the RCMP, they will be given that opportunity if they if they choose to. Um, and there's other there is so many policing jobs in this. Province. I mean, I, it's not just this province. It's actually all in North America. There's an extreme shortage of police officers. So there is no end of jobs. But I can also tell you this, Bruce, this, doesn't, th- this will not happen overnight. So people will be able to work out their, um, their uh, time period. And they could be still working in Surrey for the coming months or a year before we get a full complement up of, of RCMP. Because as much as there is about 150 SPS officers on the ground, there's over 600, over 600 RCMP officers. So um, they too are important and their jobs too are important. And so we can make sure that there is a home for everybody. Is this going to end up in a huge legal fight with the organization that is now the uh, Surrey Police Department, even if it is an organization in the cloud, an organization does exist. They're going to obviously be fighting for the preservation of that in some form. That's going to be picked up by the taxpayers, is it not? Any legal fight? Are you prepared for that? Um, I don't know what the legal fight would be about. I mean, there there may be some people that will have termination notices, and and that happens. And uh, but again, I will I will go back to uh, the advice that I got from our own city staff is that moving forward with the RCMP is far far more beneficial to the budget of the city of Surrey than staying with the SPS. And I can tell you, I know just looking at our own numbers that. Uh, we crunched, and we had uh, several uh, accountants look at. Um, it is a very, very expensive process 
for us to carry on uh, with the Surrey Police Service. It has been, it is very expensive to have a municipal police, and you can tell not by our numbers, but by provincial numbers. They're, all the municipal police forces are significantly more expensive than RCMP jurisdictions. Doug McCallum, Surrey's mayor, going down to defeat at the hands of Brenda Locke, who is now Surrey's mayor-elect. Brenda Locke is joining us now, and thank you so much again, uh, Brenda, for spending some time with us. No problem. Uh, This uh, story coming out of Global News, and we saw some of the pictures, the Buick SUV that was given, I guess, to the mayor during his term in office to use, but city-owned, was returned on Sunday morning with huge amounts of damage. Uh, the front end looks like it's being crumpled in. Bit of a surprise. Uh, what's your take on this? Well, first of all, I certainly hope that uh, nobody was hurt in a, in an accident. But I um, I don't know uh, much about it other than I do know that the uh, car was uh, returned. I um I also don't know why the mayor has ever had a car, to be perfectly frank. Uh, we we get a allowance uh, from the city of Surrey, and um, so I don't know why the, the uh, mayor had a car in the first place, but he did. And um, it's unfortunate that it's uh, smashed, and I understand that the police are looking into it at this point. So I, I really don't know much more than that. City of Surrey has uh, picked up legal fees for Doug McCallum as he goes before the courts on a different matter. This matter uh, being on um, uh, on serious charges. Uh, if he is found not or guilty, if he is found guilty of uh, public mischief, will he end up uh, paying those uh, fees himself, or can the city recoup them? Um, uh, certainly, I have said, and we, I will be uh, asking our legal team to do everything that we can to recover those fees. It is, uh, in my mind, and I've spoken to a number of lawyers about this, completely in a, irresponsible that he wouldn't pick up his own fees. And I have uh, spoken also with staff and said, I don't know why we're paying them in the first place, because we are covered when somebody is attacking us. So if somebody is uh, is accusing us of something and filing a writ against us personally, then we are, um, we are protected. But that isn't the case. This is uh, a mayor who was criminally charged and he should have to pay his own, uh, his own legal fees in my mind. And I am, I am going to do everything to ensure that he does. Okay, we do have other projects that are, um, you know, already underway, like SkyTrain and some municipal structures uh, being built, the twin rinks in the uh, Cloverdale area. Those are going to continue, right? Uh, they absolutely. The uh, SkyTrain um, has uh, now been been uh, approved provincially and federally, and and. Uh, I believe it's it's now through Treasury at uh, the province. Uh, in terms of the twin rinks, we would actually see like to see a, a third rink go in there. Um, it's always easier and, and less expensive to put it in right at the front end. So I've asked uh, staff if they would take a look at that and see if we can adjust those um, 
you know, have those re, uh, re-and-read the drawings so that we can put a third rink there. Terrific. Brenda Locke, I wish we had more time. I hope you won't be a stranger uh, when you get into uh, into later on, two years down the road as mayor. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Bruce. And that's my commitment. I will always come on when I can. Thank you. Let's talk about staff shortages and some soaring wait times because they're starting to have a terrible impact on a cancer care system in the province of B.C., a system that has had international recognition of being one of the best in the world. But that's not the reality right now. And the reality right now is insiders at B.C.'s Cancer Care Agency are sounding the alarm on a system that they say is plummeting in quality of care. And that's a system that had international repute. Well, with that comes some awkward questions and some things that we may not even want to consider, but possibly they are realities and they need to be addressed. And one of them is this question. Could cancer screening and the waits and the wait times behind cancer screening be causing higher assisted suicides? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. And to do that, we bring in the president of the BC Radiology Society, Dr. Charlotte Young-Hing. Doctor, thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Thank you for your interest in this story. Well, interest, but it is uh, very alarming when you take a look at a question that may be kind of awkward and uh, certainly disturbing. Uh, Tell me about this, this connection between possibly higher assisted suicides and the weights for cancer screening? Well, in general, in medical imaging, so x-ray, CT, ultrasound, MRI, there, there's a crisis in BC. There's hundreds of thousands of patients who are, work, are waiting for medical imaging in the province, and these wait times are dangerously long. And it's true that some of those patients are not going to be cancer patients, but a, number of those, a huge number of those cases are probably cancer patients. And we know the natural history of cancer. And when cancer is diagnosed at a, late, at a later stage, it requires more invasive testing and treatment. And there are some patients who um, have been waiting a really dangerously long amount of time um, for their imaging. And sometimes medical imaging is required before the patients can be referred to specialists, such as oncologists. And... Um, on Salt Spring Island, uh, the alarm has been sounded about patients who are choosing medically assisted, um, medically assisted uh, dying, um, and in, because they are waiting for medical imaging and uh, just that oncologist appointment, they're choosing to die in, because they can't stand waiting any longer. It's it's absolutely devastating. So medically assisted death as a choice coming from uh, some of the later stages, and it is your belief, I guess, then, that if we had some of the earlier diagnosis, that uh, there may be different uh, choices being made. Absolutely. Um, Earlier diagnosis. We we like to find cancer when it is easy to treat and before the treatments really affect the patient's um, standard of living. And um, what's happening is that it's not even the treatments that are affecting the patient's standard of living. It's the cancer itself that's affecting the patient's standard of living. 
So you talk about staffing shortages. What is, uh, what's holding this up? Is it radiologists, uh, a lack of them, or is it right across the board in all the different specialties? Well, there definitely is a shortage of radiologists, but particularly there's a critical shortage of medical imaging technologists. So those are the very, very important people who take the pictures that the radiologists then interpret. So if those people cannot cannot take the pictures, run the machines, then we, we just can't do the work. So they are, they are critical to our work, and because there's a shortage of them, um, these volumes are going up. Have we heard anything about uh, like a liquid diagnostic testing? I heard that that may be something that was being talked about as a different way of um, uh, maybe getting early detection. Um, I think... I'm not totally aware about that. And, you know, for specific things like breast imaging, the standard of care is mammography. So screening mammography starting at age 40 every year saves many lives. There's a 40% reduction in um, deaths for those people. So, you know, we have proven, proven technology that we rely on that we um, have a shortage of. We talk about these shortages, and certainly that is a reality, but I'm going to bounce something else off you because I think anyone that's, you know, come out of the pandemic or tried to see a doctor or especially a walking clinic doctor and relied upon them, uh, they know that the reality more often than not is that they are getting uh, appointments for many things that they used to go into an office for at home, Uh, and that's continuing even now. Uh, Do you think that this is also contributing to the problem where doctors, maybe uh, your GPs or your walk-in clinic doctor, may be not able to diagnose some things uh, when they do uh, at-home checkups? Well, we have seen since the pandemic um, a larger number of cases that come in where the patient has not been physically examined, but they have a symptom that they've described to the physician, and that's why they've ordered the imaging. And there has been some contribution to the increased volume because of that, absolutely. And the volumes just in general in medical imaging have been skyrocketing even before COVID and the backlogs. We're talking with Dr. Charlotte Young-Hing who is a president of the BC Radiology Society, talking about uh, the staff shortages right now. And one of the links to a very awkward situation, and that is doctor-assisted death and the choice to go in that direction. Um, Some of the numbers in the studies uh, have come out and really suggested um, that this is an alarming problem. What are you looking at uh, to back up some of your beliefs? Well, we, we do know that the wait times for um, breast imaging have in, have really increased. In some places, we did the math, and the wait times have increased by four, so four times as long now. Um, there's wait times over three months for follow-up of abnormal screening mammograms. Um, there's a wait of over one year for uh, screening breast ultrasound for dense breasts, and 40% of women in BC have dense breasts. And so it's, you know, that's, that affects a large number of patients in this province. Um, 
We also know that uh, the community imaging clinics that perform over 60% of breast imaging have really been struggling. They um, have had to increase their overhead costs, so their PPE, and all of, all the same things that, um, you know, the family medicine clinics are struggling with, the community imaging clinics are struggling with, and that has also really added to the, um, to the backlog. Doctor, how do we go about fixing this? What's needed? Well, we we see four areas that could be improved. So um, the human health resources, the, the medical imaging technologists, if there were more technologists, we could do more studies and then the wait times would be would be less. So um, recruitment, retention incentives for technologists, and we need to train more technologists. Um, absolutely, the technologists are a huge bottleneck in terms of medical imaging. So... Um, everything we can do to keep the technologists we have and create more technologists. And then the equipment um, across the province is aging and we need more equipment and we need to replace equipment. There are some technologies um, that are not available to everyone across the province, like um, 3D mammal or breast homosynthesis, um, things like that. If that could be available uh, more across the province, we potentially could decrease the number of patients coming back for ultrasounds and additional imaging. And um, we do need to increase the um, fee codes for for breast imaging. There's absolutely no incentive for uh, radiologists to to do breast imaging, and, you know, that's just a problem. Um, We need to train more radiologists who specialize in breast imaging, but before that, we have to entice people to actually apply to, um, to become breast imagers. And then the community imaging clinics specifically require emergency overhead support, very similar to the family physician situation. Um, they're really struggling, and because they do over 50% of all the imaging in the province, if they were to reduce their services or close, the wait times for medical imaging would would just be untenable. So it is a multi-pronged approach, and you can see the challenges in that. But thank you so much for uh, sharing that and outlining uh, that uh, that challenge with us. Dr. Charlotte Yong-Hing, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. You know, it's a, a continuing problem or challenge the challenge of tags and uh, graffiti in Chinatown. If you drive through the area, you can see this on many different buildings, even buildings that are newer. But on Saturdays, quite often you see something that's very different, and that is a group of concerted, dedicated uh, people that are working to really do something to improve the community and clean up a lot of the graffiti in Chinatown. Well, Kitty Lowe is someone we have been talking with in the past, uh, is a program coordinator for the Chinatown Community Policing Center. And uh, thanks so much, Kitty, for uh, joining us again. I appreciate uh, you spending time with us. Thanks for having me again. We really appreciate your guys' support and also helping us kind of outreach the community um, on this uh, new project. Since we last talked, uh, which may have been a few months ago, uh, are there any changes in the level or the challenges in uh, in cleaning up some of the problems uh, in Chinatown? Well, we definitely have had a great success on Saturday, especially with all the volunteers coming out. Um, one challenge that, of course, we always face is, you know, with graffiti coming up, we really can't predict when there will be new ones. 
So we're always looking for volunteers to join our team. And we, uh, with these big events, we really get to gather a big group to come out. But um, we hope that this project will be long-term and we can get smaller groups going every week just to help support our community. So one big challenge really is to just get more volunteers to come out on a weekly basis um, at the Community Policing Centre so that we can continue supporting businesses on a weekly basis. The businesses that actually do this themselves and have done it in the past uh, spend a lot of money trying to remove uh, graffiti. So this really is an assistance in, in ways to, I guess, businesses that have been struggling in the area, isn't it? Yeah, we've one of our main priority is to help businesses because we, we know and we understand that removing graffiti can be quite a challenge, and especially with the cost. Um, of having to do it on almost a weekly basis. So with our program, we want to support businesses so that we can kind of alleviate some of that pressure to have to remove their own graffiti. Um, And we understand also with a lot of the legacy businesses in Chinatown, um, and a lot of them are mom and pop shops, we want to support all businesses alike um, so that, again, we can help alleviate some of the costs and give them some support from our volunteers end. We've heard many stories about disturbing graffiti. Sometimes it's even racist uh, sayings, but uh, graffiti in general. But there is also another side to uh, graffiti, and that's that graffiti art. Uh, Some amazing artists and amazing works. Uh, Have you come across dealing with this, the graffiti art? And are you getting rid of that too? We've definitely been working closely with businesses to make sure that all of the graffiti or tags that we remove are strictly vandalism. Um, we understand that some businesses might opt and allow for um, artists to come and paint over their walls or display their own art. Um, we appreciate that. But all of the graffiti or tags that we remove, um, businesses did not give permission for. And so we really want to clarify the difference. We always make sure to ask businesses too whether or not they want our service. They have to sign a liability form and they have to sh- let us know that whatever we're removing um, is vandalism and it's un- unwanted. We're talking with Kitty Lowe, who is a program coordinator at the Chinatown Community Policing Center, talking about uh, graffiti and cleaning it up. And it's an ongoing effort, uh, an effort that really takes a lot of volunteers. How many do you have, Kitty? And uh, how do you get those volunteers? So on Saturday, we're really fortunate because we're able to have uh, volunteers from many different groups come out, like TD Bank Group, Citizens Crime Watch, and the Vancouver Police Department. On a regular basis, we have about 20 or so active volunteers divided into our many different programs. Um, We hope to continue expanding this, um, again, just so we can have a weekly group going out to continue uh, cleaning our local businesses. What do you say to other communities who may be thinking about this but don't have any volunteers? Have you heard from any, or uh, is this an opportunity, do you think, to take a look at what's happening in Vancouver and maybe replicate it in other areas, maybe around B.C.? So we're really thankful for the support, um, you know, with the Vancouver Police Foundation and the TD Bank Group that allowed us to uh, generously donate us so that allowed us to do this. Um, for us, we're also thankful that we've gathered the support of our local stakeholders, um, City of Vancouver, local BIA, and of course our local merchants. And I cannot forget about the Vancouver Police Department um, with their endless support on this project. So I think really just coming together and to um, discuss ideas and build that kind of foundation up so that everybody can let each other know what their opinions are, uh, how we can go about this. That's really helped us. And you know, we, we hope to continue building those relationships in our local community, and I encourage anybody who would be interested in doing something similar to also start similar conversations in their community. 
Where would you start with that? Like a mayor and council, a police department? Uh, if you're listening to this in other communities, where would you recommend starting? For us, we started very, very locally, very grassroots um, type of project. Um, we are closely partnered with the Vancouver Police Department, so we're so thankful for their support with our neighbor police officer, Constable Byron Lee, Constable Stuart Black, and his Citizens Paramount volunteers. So we, this project really just started from the conversations um, of our local community. For us, we're thankful we're partnered with the Vancouver Police Department. Um, we've also talked to our local BIA, gathered some of their support. So really from the ground up. Okay. Yeah, I hear you. Kitty, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You know, many a conversation, I bet, has started with these words. Have you heard what Elon Musk is doing now? Well, let's get into this. Elon Musk has a super app plan for Twitter. Yeah, a super app plan. What is that? Well, it's all super vague, but we do know a couple of things. First of all, Elon Musk has a love for the letter X. He calls his son with Grimes X. Of course, the actual name is a whole bunch of letters and symbols all strung together, but for their purpose, they call their son X. He named the company that he created to buy Twitter X Holdings. And of course, there's this rocket company, naturally called SpaceX. So what about this latest one, uh, a super app and uh, X Holdings? Uh, it makes you wonder, what is the future of Twitter and Elon Musk, uh, you know, monkeying around with it? Well, the best guy to talk to this is always Andy Brar. He's our technology and digital lifestyle expert at Handy Andy Media. Andy, good morning and happy Monday to you. Happy Monday, Bruce. What do you make of Elon Musk, first of all? Uh, are you, I've never asked you this before, fan or not a fan? I'm a fan. He's, he's on my list of guys I would love to go and uh, fishing for a weekend where you can just have some random conversations or even just to have a beer with Elon Musk and to, to pick his brain to see where, where he's going because he's been around for a long time. He's shaped the internet and he's still continuing to do it to this day. So I would love to sit down and, and chat with Elon Musk. Uh, so I, I am quite a fan of his. Yeah, he's a weirdo. Um, but I have to agree, I do like uh, Elon Musk in terms of an innovator, certainly a disruptor in the truest uh, way of looking at it. But uh, some of his ideas are a little bit bizarre, and some of the ways he looks at things are way out there. And, uh, oh, I should ask you this. Uh, remember Saturday Night Live when he appeared on Saturday Night Live and there's all that controversy? Were you okay with that? Well, it's not only that, he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, Smoking Cannabis. So you can imagine his executive team uh, right. wondering what, what Elon Musk is doing, you know, smoking a joint with Joe Rogan. So, yeah, he's very controversial. He kind of just goes whatever, does whatever he wants. And, you know, he's he's by far, I think we can all agree that the man is a genius. You know, yep. the, the, the companies that he's founded are groundbreaking. He's the Edison of our time. And if you don't think he's a genius, he'll do something uh, kind of wacky to uh, keep reminding you that that's a tortured genius behind Elon Musk. My opinion, not his. Um, but anyways, uh, Andy, when it comes down to Twitter, what is Elon Musk doing here? Well, it looks like he really wants to go back to his original idea that he had way back in 1999. Now, you kind of mentioned that he has this fascination with the letter X. Well, back in 1999, he founded X.com. It was an online financial service and email payment company. 
Uh, that was actually the first federally insured online bank. They had 200,000 customers after the initial uh, months of operation. So this is way back like when we were talking about Y2K. That company, Bruce, eventually merged with another company. It became PayPal. And then in 2002, just three years later, it was acquired by eBay. PayPal was acquired by eBay for $1.5 billion in stock. So that's where Elon got his money and his start in the tech industry. But X.com, here's a funny thing that a lot of people don't mm -hmm. know. In 2017, he actually bought the domain X.com back from eBay. And he said he wanted it for sentimental value. But what he's doing with this acquisition of Twitter, it looks like that initial you know, grand vision he had of X.com, he wants Twitter to be part of that. And as you mentioned, X.com would essentially be a super app. A super app. And that he keeps on mentioning super app. I have no idea what that means, a super app. What's your best guess? Super app, the best way to describe it, it's like a little ecosystem. So apps within a, an app. And if you look in China, they have WeChat. And that is your quintessential example of a super chat because you can do virtually anything inside of WeChat. You can talk to your friends. You can make online payments. You can send money. You can order a taxi. It is the the app of all apps. You really just need that one app. However, this notion of super app has not translated to North America. We still use multiple apps, but companies like Facebook have been trying to create a super app. When Facebook still first started, it was to connect with your friends and your old high school buddies. And then it morphed into something more. Of course, they have Facebook Marketplace, which took out Craigslist. And now they're even trying to get Facebook dating. Like in Facebook's perfect world, you're going to find love and sell your old toaster all inside of Facebook. So that's an example of, super, of, of a super app. And that's what Elon Musk wants to do with Twitter. He wants to use the, what is it, 250 million Twitter users and use that as the gateway to create a super app, which he will probably call x.com. So it would probably be just a lot more functions, I'm guessing, that when you use uh, Twitter, you would see, uh, you know, some choices or something uh, to go into like a marketplace or go into your dating app if he was to take those ideas and put them into Twitter. Is that the idea? Yeah, he's already hinted that he wants to create uh, or, you know integrate Twitter to basically handle payments for goods and services. So it, if he was to do that, then you have payments, you have goods. He, he's basically trying to create almost like another Amazon inside of a social media network. And I think that's kind of his grand vision. Elon Musk is a fascinating individual. We have to remember he started, you know, obviously Tesla, SpaceX, Starlink. So this man thinks big. He's got grand visions. And for a long time, Bruce, we've been wondering, what is his fascination with Twitter? Does he just like mm -hmm. tweeting? Is he going to spend $44 billion to do that? But it looks, like, it looks like he's got a big, big grand vision. And he, Twitter is going to be part of that. Now, he's, he's alluded that he could start this without Twitter and create this X.com idea of his. But he feels that with Twitter... Uh, integrated into it, it could probably accelerate it and get those Twitter users and Elon Musk fans into this new ecosystem, this super app called X.com. Now, here's the thing about Twitter for my take on it. I love Twitter. I, I, Twitter is my go-to, even more so than Facebook and everything else. But I find it as a place that tends to have more officialdom uh, meaning that if you want to hear the official word from a company or something, you will go to Twitter to find it. If you want it from an organization that's government related, more likely to go to Twitter than you are to 
uh, say Facebook or uh, Instagram or something like that. Um, do you think all these uh, directions that uh, he's talking about, Elon Musk wants to go in, will deter from that audience? It, you know, I, I, I'll tell you this, Bruce, if Elon Musk does acquire Twitter, it's going to be very, very different than the Twitter that we know and use today. It Twitter is very interesting as a social media um, platform because it's so much of a part of modern culture. You know, we've seen with riots and, and just breaking news. So it's never really made a lot of money and people don't aren't willing to pay to tweet, you know, so they had that that problem. And so when Elon Musk came with a forty four billion dollar offer to buy it, you had to wonder what is he planning to do with this? But it really seems it's just a means to an end. However, in this case, Bruce, I think he's going to have a lot of problems trying to create a super app in America because a lot of people have tried and no one has succeeded because the culture, the internet culture between China and North America is vastly different. We have so much more options. We care about privacy. We don't put all our eggs in one basket, or at least we try not to when it comes to these big tech companies. So we want choice. Whereas in, in Asia and China in particular, they don't really have choice. There's so much restrictions when it comes to what apps you can download. So that by that nature, that created a super app culture, but I don't see it translating to North America. So if anybody could pull it off, it's Elon Musk, but I still think he's got a hard road to follow if he wants to turn Twitter into a super app. Bottom line from Andy Brar. Thank you so much, Andy. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Bruce. Many stories came out of Saturday night in the SIPA collection results. And one of them, and a very interesting one, a proud moment for many people, BC's first openly trans school board trustee elected in, of all places, Chilliwack. Terry Westerby, we've talked with Terry before. Terry is joining us again this morning. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, Terry, and congratulations. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me back. What a proud moment. Um, were there tears? How are you feeling? How were you feeling when uh, you finally, I mean, this has been a long path, hasn't it? It has. Um, it, I'm, I'm elated. And there were definitely tears. Um, my, my mom was there celebrating with me, my partner, all my friends and family. And we all got to share all that moment together with uh, the other five progressive trustees. And um, yeah, it was just a beautiful moment knowing that Chilliwack said yes to inclusion and that we're ready to move forward together. Now, this was also a hard path when it comes to talking about inclusion in Chilliwack. You had outspoken uh, anti-SOGI members of the school board uh, and Barry Neufeld, one of the best known ones, uh, coming out and wanting uh, no part of the SOGI program in Chilliwack schools. That's going to change at least that tone. How do you feel about that? Is this a victory of sorts? Absolutely. Uh, Tulloch is tired of hearing all of the anti-SOGI hate, and we're ready to move forward. We're ready to embrace uh, the diverse representation and who we are as as people. Um, Tulloch is a diverse place, and it's just so exciting to know that um, they're ready to embrace that, and they said yes. I'm just so happy that they, they chose me, they chose a trans person, and they chose trans lives over bigotry. Terry, you didn't have a big, uh, I'm guessing, a big amount of money behind you uh, to run. So this must really have been grassroots people that uh, pour their heart into doing what they figured was the right thing. That's got to be extra special, eh? 
it's very special. This whole movement has been grassroots. Um, we've been fighting together since 2017 to try to make Chilliwack a more inclusive place. And, and they finally heard us. They, they listened to what was going on uh, behind closed doors. And they, they stood up and they said, no more. We're, we're here with you. And uh, it's just so beautiful to know that, that, that they are here listening and that they are willing to amplify our voices. And now we have representation on the school board that's finally going to represent all of Chilliwack. And all of our voices can be heard equally. Terry, around the province, we had uh, several parents groups that were writing against um, uh, against Soji being in the schools, essentially. That was the reason why they got into uh, running for uh, school trustee. Uh, not a lot of success anywhere. Um, what do you think of that? Uh, did that surprise you in a good way? or It's been such a great surprise. Um, just the reaction as well to, to it, um, that everyone is making a statement. They're standing up and they're saying, we want to have inclusion, representation, diversity, and we, we're we all here together to stand up for it. And it's been so moving to see that um, basically all across BC this morning and yesterday, people have just been rejoicing in this change um, and such a difference it's going to make in, in everybody's life in, in uh, the social way, knowing that like, this is what we actually are. This is who we, who we are and what we believe in. Uh, and I think that knowing that we belong here in Chilliwack, knowing that LGBT people belong and need to belong no matter what, I think that's going to make a big difference to people's lives. We're talking with Terry Westerby, uh, BC's first openly trans school board trustee elected in Chilliwack. And Terry, uh, somebody may wonder, is there anything really that can be done at the school trustee level? And if so, what is that to make schools more inclusive? What do you want to do? What can you see? What actions can be taken now? Well, uh, the job of a trustee is to create and approve policies. And when you have representation at that table, you then bring a lens uh, where you can see and bring what the community uh, is going through and experiencing to that policy. So if it's got gaps, if there's gaps inside that policy where there are people that are underserved, um, I will be able to see that because of my representation and because I am openly listening and amplifying the voices of people that it affects. And that should be what every trustee is doing, is listening to the community, hearing what they have to say, how those policies affect them, and making sure that those policies are efficient and effective and there are no gaps and everyone is included in it so that there are no shortfalls for any student that comes to school. What are your first priorities? What would you like to see that uh, has been a bit of a roadblock in the past in Chilliwack? I think just in general, communication has been uh, lacking and people have been scared to speak out, scared to speak up. And I think now we're going to, we've created a board that's progressive. That means they're willing to listen. Um, we ha- even have Richard Posey, who's a new trustee. So we've got a whole new lease that we've turned over. And I'm really hoping that that means more communication, more openness, and more support for all the all the teachers, parents, all the EAs, all the staff, everyone who feels like our district has been difficult to work in. I'm really hoping that that's going to change and we're going to attract new teachers and new EAs and retain some of the amazing talent that we already have here now. And quickly, before we let you go, Terry, uh, following your win, were you surprised by any uh, outreach? Uh, anyone that phoned you up to give you congratulations that you thought, wow, cool? I've been uh, overwhelmed with all the messages from people, especially LGBT people and Chilliwack and all beyond who've said thank you for representing us. 
And thank you for making this historic moment for us because it changes everything. And I've been very overwhelmed with that. And I think it's been the biggest piece of it uh, for me, um, the change that they're going to feel in their lives because they know that they're accepted and they belong. And all of them reaching out to me, I just want to say, please keep it coming because it, it really fills me with joy and keeps me going. So thank you all very much. Terry, big job ahead. Thank you so much for spending time and joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me.